Well, this morning we begin our nine-week sermon series study through the book of Judges. This is going to be just an incredible conversation if you kind of choose to lean in and choose to read through the text of Scripture, whether you're by yourself or with your family or with your steady ten, but we're looking forward to this conversation. Judges is the seventh book in your Bible. It is 21 chapters long. Ironically, despite its length, most of us in this room and listening online would probably only know two names for sure, Gideon and Samson, and if you're really good, you might even know Deborah the Judge. It's my hope that when we're done this particular series, that the names of Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Abimelech, Jephthah and others, that they would be as common to you as the names of David, Mary and Joseph, and a host of others that I'm sure that you know. Why the book of Judges, some have asked, as we've kind of prepared for this particular series. Well, it's a legitimate question, particularly once you get into the book and discover how brutal it actually is. It's already created some wonderful bedtime uh, story moments with our children. Lauren came downstairs. She's like, Dad, have you read this book? Do you, know, do you know what's in this? I'm like, well, yes, I do. And it's already created some incredible conversations. Now, here's a, a nuance that I think some of you already know, but a lot of us don't really see it in its kind of intention or the way in which we would say this. There's lots of people in my life who would say, well, the Bible says so. Like, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And here's the thing. Just because it's recorded in the pages of scriptures doesn't mean that God is cool with what's happening in the scriptures. So when we read through, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that this is in the Bible. I can't believe that this is here. I can't believe that... that just because it's there doesn't mean that God is happy with what he is seeing unfolding in the pages of his very word. Judges particularly is a picture of the nation of Israel through a period of time where God is greatly displeased what is there. So as you're reading through the stories and as you're getting to know the names and moments, just because it's there doesn't mean that this is a good thing that the people of God are doing and what's unfolding throughout those pages. But to the question, why the book of Judges? Well, there's three real reasons why we're doing this. Number one, the whole of Scripture is beneficial to our life, even in the Old Testament. I know that for many, the Old Testament is often overlooked or downplayed. And it's a very real attitude amongst kind of Christ followers now, because it's an attitude that grows out of a very real dynamic. And this is the second one. We don't know how to read the Old Testament with our New Testament ears on. As a follower of Christ, there's a way in which we go about reading the Old Testament that has to be greatly shaped by what we know to be true in the New Testament. The Old Testament, if we don't read it through this particular lens, becomes very complicated. At times, becomes very contradictory to what we know and see and read in the New Testament. The goal of mine throughout this series is that you would learn to read the Old Testament with New Testament ears on all the way through, and at uh, kind of critical moments, we'll stop and show you how we apply what we know to be true of Christ and New Testament language, and how the old is often pointing out to this stuff that we know to be true and real in the New Testament. And the third one is, we work through a series in the fall called Kingdom and Culture, and it highlights, we work through kind of aspects of our world that's happening right now, and it is a deep reflection of the entirety of the book of Judges. It's what happens to a culture, it's what happens to a kingdom, 
when there isn't a figurehead. It is what happens when we don't fix our eyes on the work and person of Jesus Christ. There's a line that we just heard a moment ago in the bumper that said, in those days Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit. This line that we would read through the book of Judges, which was very true then, it's incredibly true even now to this very day. Judges, this particular book, it gives us an inside look into a moment of Israel's life that is new for them. It's an unsettling moment of their time of people. There are significant ups and there are some significant downs. There are some successes, there are some failures. There is victory, there is struggle, mostly struggle. It speaks of a people who will oftentimes cry out to God for mercy and help, while others just choose to flat out ignore Him. This describes very much the world in which we are living in right now. We as a people, we're adjusting to a new time in history. Life with COVID, the proposed life of after COVID, the ups and downs of this pandemic are brutal. Case counts and hospitalizations, fear and freedom, stay at home or go out, but if you go out, stay away from everyone. The personal lives of millions of Canadians and people all over the world are frankly a mess. This time in our history has taken a toll on relationships, on mental health, on our finances, and the list goes on. There are some who, like the people in the book of Judges, they cry out for God for help and mercy, and then there's others who just choose to flat out ignore him. So this morning, let's jump in, let's get started with the book of Judges. And to do this, we need to spend some time kind of setting the stage for this particular book. There's a lot of water under the bridge, so to speak, by the time we turn to Judges chapter 1, verse 1. And without setting the stage, you become, in, in some ways, like my mom. And my mom, when we were kids, um, we would have like a family night or a family movie, and mom would say, oh, you guys go start the movie, and I'll just finish the dishes, I'll, I'll kind of join in when, when I'm ready. And then we would go start, and we learned this after about the fifth episode or fifth show, where mom would show up 15 minutes later, and she's like, well, who's that? Why, why are they angry? Like, who's the, like, and I'm like, oh. So it's kind of like we have to go back to paint for you how and why we're here in Judges 1, otherwise you're going to be like my mom, and you're going to email me like, well, who's this person, and why are we here? So just so that we don't bring up PTSD stuff for me in my life, we're going to spend some time kind of working through how we got here. So here's the quick overview that brings us to Judges 1, verse 1. And it all starts with this verse in Genesis chapter 12, and it's on the screen, and it reads this. This is God speaking to Abram. Go from your country your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. We're not going to read the whole through of Genesis chapter 12, but this is the moment where it really all begins. Abram, Abraham, does in fact leave his father's household and he goes to this land that God has shown to him. God shows him the boundaries of this land. God promises to Abram that his descendants will inherit this land. We often refer to this land as the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, or the promised land. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time for this promise to be realized. Four generations later, Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt. These are the people that we call the Israelites. They become enslaved to the Egyptians for some 400 years. We spoke of this enslavement last Sunday morning. So this means that there's at least 500 years between the promise that God gives to Abram and now to the people of Israel who are living in the land of Egypt that now God has called Moses to come and lead those people out to the promised land. 
God, through Moses, frees the Israelites from slavery. And God guides His people through Moses to the very edge of the promised land. Moses sends 12 spies into the land, and when they return, kind of doing some reconnaissance work about where they're about to go, this is what we read in the book of Judges. Sorry, in the book of Numbers. When we went into the land which you have sent us, it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. What follows this kind of dialogue between Moses and the 12 spies that have gone into the land to kind of check the whole space out, 10 of the 12 spies convince the people that despite God's promise, despite the words from Moses, they should not go into the land. And so they don't. And God, because of their lack of faith, sends them into the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years later, After the weak faith folks are now all dead, they all come to the promised land edge again. And before they enter, Moses delivers an epic speech. It's called the book of Deuteronomy. All the way through it, there is one reoccurring instruction. I'm going to read it for you. It's not on the screen, but I want you to read it it for you. It's in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. And this is found throughout the book of Deuteronomy multiple times. But this is the instruction that Moses is now giving to the people, which sounds very similar to some of the original conversations that they are to have as they walk into the land. It says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Jerusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, seven larger nations and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to them or take their sons for your daughters. For you will turn your children away from me and serve other gods. The Lord's anger will burn against you and quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. In other words, they are to go into the land and they are to rid the land of all of the different dynamics that are true in the land. They're not to intermarry with them. They're to completely destroy their false religions and practices. After Moses gives this speech, Joshua is ushered in as the new leader. Joshua was one of the 12 spies. He was one of the two spies that wanted to go into the land, but was punished because the other ten's lack of faith and journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years. It's under Joshua's leadership where Israel does, in fact, finally enter the promised land. And they enter it with great success. Joshua would have been about 60 years old when he leads Israel into the land, and he conquers about 31 cities, towns that are found in the land of Canaan. The book of Joshua highlights all of this. However, 31 cities are nowhere close to conquering all of the promised land. There are still many other cities and towns to conquer. There are still many peoples that the Israelites need to drive out of this particular place. And now, they're going to have to do this without their leader, Joshua. 
Judges 1-1 begins with, after the death of Joshua. And so the stage is set for this particular book of Judges. Israel, who for some 90 years have experienced wonderful leadership under Moses and Joshua himself. And now the people of God have entered the land. They've started to do what God has asked them to do, and Joshua now dies. And we're going to quickly see what happens to the leaderless people and it's not going to fare well for them. By the end of Judges, the wheels have fallen completely off the wagon. You begin to see this problem unfolding at the very tail end of Judges chapter 1, and we'll put some passages up here so you can get a sense of how quickly it begins to fall apart. In uh, verse 21 of the book of Judges chapter 1, it says this, The Benjamites, which is an Israelite tribe, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who are living in Jerusalem. And then we go over to verse 27. But Manasseh, another Israelite tribe, did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Eblom or Megiddo and other surrounding settlements. Judges 1.28, when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. Verse 28. It becomes very obvious that tribe after tribe after tribe, when you begin to read the tail end of chapter 1, they do not do what God asks them to do. Israel is abandoning or they are ignoring God's given instruction over their life and there are significant consequences that will come. You see these consequences given to them in Judges chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3, and We'll read this this morning. It says this, I, this is God speaking to Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you to the land that I swore to give you to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. It becomes very clear, very quick. That without a God-fearing leader, a God-honoring leader, they absolutely tank as a people. And throughout the whole book of Judges, we will see this happen time and time again. As it turns out, the book of Judges is one of the books that speaks to the reality that leadership is in fact important. It's important in every facet of human life. That was true then, it continues to be true now, and every single human being on the planet knows this to be true. This is why even very modern 21st century people, we go looking for life coaches. PEI alone has six different organizations that offer people life coaches. What's a life coach, you ask? Well, it's simple. It's a leader that helps us guide our life in one way or another. My curiosity played the best of me, so I jumped on to one of these um, uh, kind of life coaches' websites this week called bark.com offers the best life coaches on the planet, it says. So I filled in the short Q&A about who I am, began working through the four simple steps with my credit card being the final step, and instantly I was going to be partnered with a life coach who would, based on my answers, help me deal with the stress that is linked to my career. I'm like, ironically, there's a lot of that right now. We as human beings are constantly looking for people to guide our life, to shape our life. This is why we have our favorite authors and our favorite podcasts. Ultimately, we're looking for guidance to live our lives well. 
I can't even begin to tell you through the course of my lifetime how many young men have lined up behind Jordan Peterson, many of whom they've built their entire life principles on what he has to say. This is why we look to political parties. Every election, we hear the words, we hear the promises, and we place our hopes and dreams for our country in them. Enough time has passed and enough failure has happened that there is just a significant amount of apathy towards the system. People have burned enough bridges, and though they want to hope and trust, they just don't care anymore. And what's even weirder, this same dynamic, this innate desire to have a leader over us, even gets played out in the life of the church, which is ironic because we already have that leader over us. But most move past that leader, and they begin to follow, lock, stock, and barrel, other earthly leaders who are deeply flawed, which we all are. To give you an example, when I started out in ministry back in 2001, there were between 20 and 25 significant speakers and authors that shaped much of the North American church dynamic from 2000 to 2010. These were the same 20, 25 people that were the keynote speakers at every conference, every rally. They wrote books upon books upon books, and they had a significant voice over what the church looked like through that decade. There are three of them still standing. Rick Warren, Andy Stanley, and Beth Moore are the only three people from that group of 25 that I remember when I was 20 who are continuing to go. They're the only three people that haven't fallen into stealing money from their church, multiple affairs, and the list goes on of the layer of brokenness in particular leaders. As we head into this series, we have to understand more than ever before. We have to get deep in our bones that we must look to and take our lead from Jesus and Jesus only. He is, in fact, the leader that God has designed for us to follow. I'm going to say this another way, and this might, this might hit home a little closer. If we know the 12 rules of life by Jordan Peterson better than what we know Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we are already in trouble. If we know the political party's policies more than what we know Jesus says about violence and life, finance and sex, then we are in trouble. If we know the latest cultural ideas and beliefs as to how we communicate with God more than what we know about Jesus and His instruction as it relates to how we actually pray to God, we are in trouble. If we know more, and you can fill in whoever and whatever, if we know more about a particular author or voice or social media person, or what, if we know more about that than we do about Christ Himself, we are already in trouble. As we come in to close this morning, I want to read to you just a couple passages of Scripture. Dana started our service this morning by highlighting a few of them, but I want to add a couple more to the incredible amount of passages that speak to Christ being the King. And with this, I'll invite Dana and team back because they're going to lead us in one more song here as we bring our service to a close. This is from Isaiah 9. This speaks to the uniqueness, the kingship of Jesus Christ that ought to be over our life. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We flip all the way over to the New Testament, Ephesians 1. 
He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that has been named. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of passages of Scriptures that speak to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That speak to this One who ought to be standing over our entire life. This One that ought to have the greatest sway over our life. That we take our lead from Him in all aspects of our life. Church family, people of God, those who are listening and they don't know who God is, Jesus Christ is the King. And we look to Him to lead us. He has led us from darkness into light so that we would remain in the light. And if we don't do this, we will become just like the people that you're going to read about all the way through the book of Judges. Caught in a very crazy cycle. Kind of this cul-de-sac of crazy where we get things together and then we forget and we kind of go back and do our own thing. And so this cycle continues to unfold and it ends in absolute ruin. And I mean ruin. At the very end of the book of Judges, we're going to jump all the way to 19. And this is where Israel lands after they continually ignore and move away from and allow God to have no sway in their life. It's perhaps one of the darkest passages in the whole of Scripture. There's a Levite man who's traveling through the promised land with his concubine. Right away you're like, is that allowed? No. It just begins to speak to the problems that are unfolding in the world. They are in need of a place to stay, so they look for lodging within God's people. They do find a place to stay in the region of the tribe of Benjamin, a place called Ephraim. A man takes him and the concubine in for the night and they fellowship together, and then the unthinkable begins to unfold on this particular evening. It highlights just how far God's people have drifted away from what life is to look like. There's a group of men who show up at the man's house, complete strangers, and they start pounding on the door and they say, bring out the man who came into your home so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house comes and asks them to stop. This is my guest. Don't be so vile. So the owner of the house offers up his virgin daughter and the concubine that the man was traveling with to the mob outside. The owner of the house says to this mob, I will bring them out to you and you can use them and you can do whatever you wish. Everything about this moment is wrong. Everything leading up to this moment is wrong. The mob takes the virgin daughter and the concubine and they raped her and abused her throughout the night and at dawn they let her go. The men of the house find them dead the next morning. We're going to finish that story weeks from now. But this is like the rock bottom place of Israel and the nation. How far gone are the people of God to offer up a daughter and a concubine for entertainment? It's a level of evil that I can't even begin to express. To do all that was done to these two individuals is an even deeper level of evil that I find hard to express. When we take our eyes off the King, King Jesus, the places that we will go as a person, as a nation, are awful. It's the very reason why there's so many 30, 40, 50 year olds, 60 year olds who will ask this incredibly painful question How did my life end up here? 
This isn't what I thought it was going to be. This isn't at all where I was dreaming my life would go. As we come to a close this morning, I want to encourage each of you here and listening online to work through the questions of who it is that you're following. And it's my hope and prayer for you that you have landed on the work and person of Jesus Christ. He's the only one of every single figurehead that has ever been. He is the only one that offers humanity something unique and special. Of all other voices, of all other leaders, of all other religious figureheads, he's the only one who has said, I have dealt with the problem of your sin. No one else has. Yes, there are the good voices and other instruction and whatever the case might be, but there is no one that says to you, I have dealt with your sin. I have dealt with the problem of evil. I have dealt with evil itself, and it has been defeated now, and one day will be fully realized. It's my prayer that you make him your king, and you follow him closely, and that you would know his words far more than whatever 12 principles you find online somewhere. That you would know his instruction of prayer far more than what this... It just baffles me over and over and over again. There is but one king who has done something significant for the world that he created. And he invites all of us into it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter the story. It doesn't matter the brokenness. It doesn't matter the evil that we've participated in. There is but one king who has said, I've done something special and unique out of my love for you and you're invited into life. I hope that you follow him. And I hope that you encourage others that you know to follow him as well. Would you pray with me this morning? Our gracious and heavenly Father, there is but one king. There is but one person who has done something significant, who is worthy to be followed. And that is your son, Jesus Christ. When we take our eyes off him, the places we will go are not good. In our own wisdom, we make decisions that are flawed deeply, that often we don't see the ramifications until decades after. We have seen this get played out in your people thousands of years ago. We see this get played out in nation after nation after nation, that when we walk away from you and your instruction for life and living, as bright as we might think we are, as sophisticated as we think we are, it just invites more ruin and more brokenness into our life. We see that on an individual's life. You are the king. You reign over all things. And you invite us in to life and life to its full. We are so grateful for that. It's my prayer that we would grow in this overwhelming space of what you have done for us. That we would grow in deep love and affection for your words to us. That when by faith follow, lead to life and life to its full. That we would grow in our ability to listen and hear and respond to the Holy Spirit that's actively working in our life. You are the king over all kings. 
and we want our lives to grow in that reality. That through time, by your grace, through your spirit, we would take on the very heart of our king, the very dispositions of our king. And all of this is for your goodness and glory. In your name we pray. Amen.